This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Patrick Tinney is an author, a keynote speaker, a trainer, an entrepreneur, and a consultant. He's also an excellent dude, and he's been super helpful in promoting both of my books, The Lost Art of Closing and The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. And we met over email, and we've had a number of conversations, and he's super smart. And he comes from a principle-based approach to selling like I do, with a couple books that are worth your time and attention. Unlocking Yes, Sales Negotiation Lessons and Strategy, and also one called Perpetual Hunger, which I like. Just the very title tells you what the book is about, and it's a prospecting book and absolutely worth your time. This is my friend Patrick Tinney in the arena. Patrick, how are you? Fantastic this morning. How about you, Anthony? Wonderful. Good to see you, even though we're, we turned the video off so we get a better audio recording here. We're here today to talk about you and your book. Well, one of your books, right? Yeah. Perpetual Hunger. So let's start. I just want to start with the beginning of the book. I want to start with the philosophy. And it, it's a, it's interesting. You've said to me before how similar some of the things that we think and have written are. But you start with the you need a hungry sales prospecting philosophy. There's not a better place to start than just right there. So what does that mean to be perpetually hungry? To me, it's a state of mind where you're you're constantly looking for opportunity, even where opportunity does not appear on a regular basis. And you're always, to me, prepared to engage a customer with intelligent discussions. And I think very much in a position to talk about their needs, wants, and being prepared to talk about how we could both bring value to the table. Why do you think that salespeople are not perpetually hungry? And, you know, my friend Jeb Blunt's got the book Fanatical Prospecting out right now, and it's a runaway bestseller. It's like the Harry Potter of all sales books. And there's something missing here when it comes to prospecting and the work that we do there. So I, I want to ask you, wh- why do you think people are not perpetually hungry? And I did a YouTube video a couple nights before we're recording this because I got a note from a guy who had one big deal in his pipeline. And after pursuing it for eight weeks and nothing else, the client put the deal on hold and he has nothing else in his pipeline. So he's not perpetually hungry. He's perpetually satisfied with one deal. Why aren't people more hungry? You know, that's a curious state. I put it down to a variety of things. When, when you got talking about the whole idea of, of a philosophy in the book, I, I dedicate almost 25% of the book, 20, 25% of the book to discussing different elements of philosophy around hunger. And let's be totally honest and say that all of us grew up in different households with different parents. Some parents had businesses, some didn't. Some of us grew up wealthy, some didn't. Some of us grew up educated, some didn't. And some of us come from different cultures. There's, 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 it's just such, such a big bag. And so I think what, what happens is, is that if you're in sales, 
and you want to succeed, then you have to find those pieces that I've laid out in my book and certainly that you've laid out in your books. You have to find those pieces and put them together and personalize them so that when you get up in the morning, you hit the floor, it's game on. You're in it to win it. And when you ask the question about why some people aren't as hungry, it could be that they've grown up in a, in a very stable environment where things just happened. I mean, parents took care of kids. There was always a backstop. I didn't grow up with that backstop. And, and so for me, that hunger came very early. And, you know, you just had to get out and get it done. And this, for me, started at a very early age. I, I knew I needed money. And uh, sometimes people uh, just don't think they need to have money. And the other thing is, I, I think that, and it's kind of a goofy thing here, but I think people are just all too willing to accumulate debt these days without thoughts of paying it back. And, you know, if you run a business, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. I think that you're hitting on something that is an important distinction, but it doesn't have to be. I don't think it has to be. At least I hope not. I have three kids and I've told them, and I've said this here on this podcast before, the greatest adversity they have is a lack of adversity. And I think there's something to getting wired with adversity early on that does create that perpetual hunger. And I don't know if it's, you know, I think fear is a dangerous thing when it stops people from acting. But fear is a powerful force when it it creates action. And I think if if you had something that happened and you use that as fuel, it ends up being pretty powerful. Oh, exceptionally powerful. And and let's also be fair and say that that some people have some skills, other people don't have some skills. But the, the thing is, everything can be learned. Almost everything can be learned. And, you know, of course, this is why people like you and I are sharing experiences to try to help people lift their game. As I say to people that I talk to in my business, in my workshops, I say to them, I say, listen, if you want to make an average living, you can make kind of an average living if you, if you sell in an average manner. However, if you're a superior sales prospector, you can live your dreams. What makes a superior sales prospector? Well, I think it's being very aware of the marketplace, very aware of where your prospects are, thinking about traditional and non-traditional revenue streams, by the way. When I was in corporate, I was always thinking about, okay, so what happens if things run out? And I was in the newspaper business for three decades, and the on-page advertising started to shrink. The freestanding inserts inside the newspaper started to grow. And so one of our core inefficiencies was, was under pressure. And even... In the flyer business, and I was I was in that for you know almost a, a decade. I was starting to see uh, it hit a tipping point, so I started building and launching products for the company. So you always have to be ahead of the curve. The other thing is is, is you you have to have that state of mind where you're where you're saying to yourself, all right, so where are databases that I can rip apart? And you know, in the era that I grew up, I grew up in it was the beginning of databases, so we were still using big hard copy directories and stuff like that. And I would just go through those directories and just strip them down. And I would make like as many calls as possible. And it's the same as when I started my career out in in Edmonton. My roommate would drop me off and I would walk for miles. I mean, miles. And just walking and talking to customers over and over and over again. So if you're not prepared to do that, then take up baking. Baking's a good business. It is a good business. <laughs> people, people are always going to want cookies and such. I'm going to jump forward in the book to another section. I'm going to go to 175 in the book, Perpetual Hunger, Sales Prospecting Lessons and Strategy, because I want to talk about piercing qualifying questions. Oh, the yeah. Diamond Standard. So talk about what is, 
Well, actually, I'd, I'd like it if you contrast this for, for people. So they get what's a standard question and then what's a, a higher value question that a salesperson should be asking? Well, you know, it might be something along the lines of, are we in line with your budget? So that's kind of a, a qualifying question. It's kind of one, as opposed to saying something like, if pricing is all that matters, how prepared are you for flexible quality delivery and problem resolution from our side? So, you know, it, you're, you're kind of, you're opening up the door to that flexibility around, doesn't matter what the budget is, I can make my stuff smaller. I, it, it, you know, are you, are you scalable? And the answer for most people is no, the service delivery has to be better. So then we, we have a, a different conversation around value creation rather than price. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think that's important. And I, I do think that there's been a change that, that I've certainly recognized that discovery questions, I mean, the, the problem right now SDRs have is they're asking the question that, that you started here as sort of, uh, you know, the standard qualifying question. What's the size of your budget? And do you have yeah. a budget right now? And that just doesn't create value for the client at all. And so SDRs have a really tough time when that's all they've been taught to do is to to ask, do you have budget? Are you the person that can make this decision? Do you have a timeline? And BAMP just doesn't even, it's not even relevant anymore. So I yeah. don't know why we're, we're doing that. Your question's a better question. But it strikes me that the most powerful questions that we can ask are the ones that causes the buyer to discover something about themselves and asking them, if that's your budget, can you take delivery in different ways? And can you live with a certain amount of a reduction in the outcome? Now we're getting into a value-based question, and they have to start asking themselves about what do I value? And that's a very, very different level question that we can ask as a, as a salesperson. Yeah, you know, and it's very much the truth, because everybody has a value equation in their mind. Everybody has a thought process on what, on what it when, when they buy something, especially when you're in the corporate world, to me, there is a, there's a lot of skittishness in the corporate world about making mistakes on the buy side, which I think is kind of funny because right now we're in a buyer's market. In other words, we have too many sellers and not enough buyers. From World War, the end of World War II up to about the, the year 2000, we can argue the numbers in and out, but there were too many buyers and, and not enough sellers. And that's why we had this massive buildout. That's why you had a massive buildout in, in, in retail and a massive buildout in everything. And, and now you're going through a change where, you know, you've got globalization, you've got everything up on the internet. And I think that that's changed everything dramatically because you, you have competitors that are hungry 24 hours a day. And so you have to create exceptional value and you have to be able to show that very early in the conversation. On the other side, I qualify people very quickly to find out whether they're really a serious client. You call them dream clients. And I love the way you do that. Or whether they're just in it to get some information from me and uh, start to eat into my money. Let's go backwards in the book from here to uh, I just picked out some chapters that I liked so that I, I wanted to talk about just specifically. So this is my agenda. For people listening, the book is broken up into many, many small chapters. So they're, they're somewhat like my first book in that regard that you've got. If you're looking for an answer, it's almost like in, encyclopedic. You could just go to a chapter and pull the answer out. So I want to go to powerful scripting and unscripting and ask you to talk about that and explain the concept here. Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I, I think that we all... When we start out with a product, we, we're, we're trying to build a story. So you want to be able to get that storytelling going. And, and also, when you get into larger sales, you know, Anthony, because I know you've done these, these types of presentations, 
when you're going and making a multi-million dollar sale, you have it, you have a, 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 a sequence that you want to work your, your proposal through. And typically, if there's really smart buyers, and, and of course, what I love to do is knock somebody off script as quickly as possible, because when you knock somebody off script, then all of a sudden, we start to have uh, very truthful conversations about what it is that we're trying to do, our objectives, our objectives to help the customer, the customer's objectives to find value. And then what we do is somehow we arrive at a gap in our expectations. And then as people, as people who are interested in doing business together, as dream partners, if you will, we try to figure out a way to close that gap so that we can actually complete a deal and and start to work together as partners, which may be lifetime partners. Tell me the outcome. Why do you want to knock the seller off his or her presentation into purchase? Why do buyers want to do that? What's their objective? I I want to just go a little bit deeper in that for people who may not recognize it's being done. Yeah. Well, uh, let me give you an example. So for instance, I I, I worked with one of the biggest department stores in Canada and, and now in the United States. It's called the Hudson's Bay Company for many years. And so our, our contracts were $10 million plus. This is what we would be negotiating for annually. At least that's what I would be putting up on the table. And I had a group of buyers there led by a, a, a VP and director and a couple of managers. And he would just say, listen, I don't want to listen to, to the front pages. He says, get to the back page. Let's get to the pricing first. And so what I did was I started to change the whole proposal around. I would just start with an executive summary and we get that out of the way. I think that when we feel like we've done our best work as salespeople, it's when we're in the the boardroom. I actually think the sales are one outside of the boardroom, but I think that the part that we like is when someone throws that challenging question out or tries to change the agenda of the meeting to drive it in a different direction and take control. And when we're standing there responding to that, that's when it feels like we're doing our very best work. I don't think that's where we actually win, though. I think it's in all the work that we do to serve the client through that buying process up to that point where we actually win deals. But it always feels good to do that, doesn't it? 1,000%. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, you I wait like- for it and you hope that you get, you're like, I hope they give me questions. And then when it's you and seven people in a room, it just feels fun. Let me tell you, Anthony, I would prepare for large negotiations. So, so when you get to around five million bucks, there's a different feeling with closing a deal. When you get up to, say, $10 million or 10 to 12, 13 million dollars, if you don't get that deal right, that's 150 good paying jobs that just don't happen. In other words, you'd be totally blown. Right. So the preparation that goes to putting deals like that together can take months. It can take six months. It can take eight months just to get the deal done. In my particular case, I was representing upwards of 125 newspapers across Canada simultaneously. And I would wake up in the middle of the night in preparation for the final days of these meetings and leave myself voicemails several times a night, just picking out key little tidbits. And then what I would do is I would make my note deck, shrink the note deck down to a very small deck and then go through a highlighting process so that when I finally walked into the room, I really didn't need to focus on anything but the customer and the customer's buying psyche that day. And I could just focus on the room. I could focus on who was looking at who to sort of say, all right, so is, are we at that moment? And, and it's very interesting. If, if you're that prepared, it's a wonderful feeling. It, it's, it's a very powerful moment for both sides, by the way, because the buyer wants to make sure that you are so prepped and worked into their space that there's total trust and say, all right, so we're going to hit this number. We're going to hit this price point. 
I think everybody can live with this. Let's move on. Is everybody going to be happy on both sides across the the ecosystem? Perhaps not, but that's something that we can sell internally and everybody walks away and said, this is a good deal. This is a deal we'll live with for a year. This is a deal that will not leak. I'm still working through this into the order that I sort of set this up for our call, but I want you to shift gears again with me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that Brent Adamson, who's a friend, and Matt Dixon wrote a blog post about relationship selling on HBR when Challenger came out, and it got a lot of people's attention. And I think what what they were saying is that if you're an order taker and you just have a good relationship, that's not going to serve you anymore in sales. And it was a little bit more hyperbolic than that. And people started talking about relationships not mattering anymore. And you've got a story. It's a very, it's an interesting story. And I've had similar experiences too. And I think if you operate from a place of integrity, you end up with stories like this, even though you never intended to end up with stories like this. But I just want you to share a little bit about the decision that you had to make after you signed a multi-million dollar contract and then the aftermath of that and why relationships matter. Because I, you and I agree on so many things, but I think uh, all things being equal relationships win and all things being unequal relationships still win. And your job is to develop relationships of value so you can make things unequal. And uh, your story here is an important one. And my personal opinion, I'm not criticizing your book, is I wish that this was very, very early in the book for the reader to start understanding the kind of integrity it takes to execute this level of relationship with clients and to to build the kind of career that you would want as a salesperson. Can you share the short version of this? Yeah, yeah, I can for you. It was one of those seminal moments, if you if you will. So here we are, we've signed a deal, 10 million plus, and, and it had an incentive plan in there. And, you know, you work on these incentive plans forever to get them right, because when you have longtime customers, they're always adding things to the pie. We're always adding things to the pie. And you're trying to close that expectation gap, which I talked about earlier. So anyway, we got this contract signed, went through the incentive plan. And at the very end, the, the buyer looks over at me and, he, uh, and his name is Steve. And he said, is this gross or net? And, and I can't honestly, to this day, I can't remember how I answered it. But when I got, I got in my car, I did answer the question. When I got in my car, the contract was signed. By the way, it's just two of us in the room. So there's a $10 million plus dollar contract. Two of us have signed off. And I, I'm driving back in my car. I'm going, this is very good. This is very good. Everybody's going to be pretty happy about this. So get back to the office and I walk in and all of a sudden you get that cold feeling. And I went, holy smoke. Let me go back and look at this gross net thing. So I went back and I looked at it. And I walked into my boss's office and I said, Don, I said, I need to sit and chat with you. And, and let me start by apologizing to you and apologizing to the company. Here's the short line. I got this agreement signed with Steve. He's really happy. He asked me gross net. And I think what's going to end up happening here at the end of all of this is we're going to end up banking a little bit more than three quarters of a million bucks on our side until the end of the year. And he says, that's great. He says, don't worry about it. He says, at the end of the year, we walk in with a big with a big check. He says, it'll all work out. It'll be fine. I said, no. I said, I don't see it that way. I see it another way. I see it in a manner in which every time I walk into that office, I'm going to be looking at him thinking, we're banking your money. We're just clicking points on it. And I said, I think I need to go back and re-sign this deal. He goes, oh, no, Pat, don't do that. No, 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 no. I said, listen, I need to go for a walk. So here we are, January. And I got my suit on and everything. And I go for about a three-quarter hour walk. And I thought to myself, all right, so 
why am I doing this? Why, why do I go to work? I'm doing this for my family. I don't do this for me. I'm doing this for my son. And I need just to go back and, and, and make this right. So I went back in and I, I announced it to my boss. I said, you know, because when you're the, you come head, you're the guy that signed the deal. You know, I just said, I'm going to go back and fix this. And he goes, oh. So anyway, I went back in, asked for a meeting. The guy said, sure, meet me up in the cafeteria. I said, I've already apologized to my side. I'd like to apologize for you. And he goes, uh-oh, what is it? I said, Steve, I made a mistake. And the deal is fine. I said, we would just end up banking that money on our side rather than distributing it to you on a monthly basis. And there was a pause. And he said to me, just, just reword the deal, bring it back the way it should be. He says, I'll sign it on the spot. So I came back and, I, and, and he signed it very quickly. And he said to me, he says, Pat, he says, you have no idea. You have no idea what you just did for me. And I said, I don't understand. He said, if I was sitting on three quarters of a million bucks at the end of the year, my people could have spent it to move merchandise. I'd have got creamed. He says, your honesty, your integrity at, at this juncture, he said, is amazing. So anyway, you, you think all this is all sort of said and done, right? So our company got bought and sold a couple of times. And there's a lot of people being laid off. And I get a phone call. And I very rarely got phone calls from Steve. I, generally, I was calling him, of course, because he's the big customer. And so anyway, he calls and he says, how's things going? I said, well, you know, it's interesting around here. And he said, are you 100% secure? I said, well, you know, you've been reading the same things I've been reading in newspapers. I said, you know, we're a lot of things in flux here. He says, not for you. I said, I beg your pardon. He says, I've already made several phone calls into in the industry. And he says, based on uh, your track record and the way that you've treated us, here, he says, you'll be working with, within days just based on my say-so. I was gobsmacked. My, my, my jaw just hit the floor. All things being equal, relationships win, right? We're still friends today. Of course. I mean, and, and that's the game. And I can't think of a better story to end on than that one because it really is – It's and I've said this in, in both books. It's not what you do. It's who you are. And we say things like, I want to be a trusted advisor – and the first part of that equation is trust. And if I can't trust you to do right by me, then we've already blown the whole recipe. Tell people where they go to find perpetual hunger right now and where they find you. Well, they can find me at www.centroidmarketing.com. Perpetual Hunger and my first book, Unlocking S, are available at Chapters bookstores across Canada. It's a regular listing and on Amazon around the world. I was going to say, you know, we don't, we have some Canadian audience here, but the Amazon's probably going to be the best place to find it. Thanks so much for coming on and thank you for all your kind words. And I'm glad I got to know you and I appreciate your emails and our conversations that we've had. Anthony, the honor is all mine. And I got to tell you, I, I, I love your work and I look forward to chatting with you well into the future. That was Patrick Tinney, and you will find him at centroidmarketing.com. You'll find that link in the show notes as well as links to both of the books. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I blog daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And you can find both of my books on amazon.com or bnn.com or in a Barnes & Noble store. Right now, I recommend you go check out The Lost Art of Closing.com. That is the book that I've just released, if you're listening to this, about the time that it's been published. And it's a book about controlling the sales process and helping your clients actually change and the commitments that you need to gain to do so. I'm Anthony Anarino. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next time in the arena.
Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.